Hello and welcome to The Interview, a podcast that presents conversations with top figures in media and politics. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite, and it's the week after the election. Joe Biden has defeated President Donald Trump, who is refusing to concede the race as his Democratic opponent marches on with the transition. Despite Joe Biden's win, polling in the 2020 election is under fire, having underestimated the success of Republicans and support for Trump in key states. To get a grasp of what exactly happened last week, I called up Harry Enten, a senior writer and analyst for CNN who covers politics, elections, and polling. We spoke about the state of American politics in the aftermath of November 3rd, the future of polling, and what it was like to cover election week in the CNN newsroom. Harry Enten is a senior writer and analyst for CNN with a special focus on elections and polling. Harry, thanks for joining us. How are you faring? Uh, I am recovering uh, after the long bender of election week and the pre-election. You know, the funniest thing is I think some people, when they're stressed out, they gain, some people gain weight, some people Mm -hmm. lose weight. And I definitely am in the latter category. I think I hit the lowest weight that I had been in at five years. So now I'm just eating everything in sight. Well, congratulations. I I actually got a couple of hardcore nine-hour sessions in this week of sleep, so I'm actually feeling pretty good, uh, not to brag, uh, and permanent brain damage notwithstanding from that week. Um, But let's talk about the election. Sure. Uh, Allow me to set up this question with a little bit of context. Uh, Democrats are obviously ecstatic that Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump, putting an end to the Trump administration. But there also seems to be this deeply ingrained disappointment with the election which was to some extent, I think, expected to be a landslide for Democrats. The presidential race was, at least on election night, quite close, a lot closer than expected. Democrats held on to the House, but somehow lost seats to Republicans, and they have yet to take control of the Senate and look like they're going to have a tough time doing so. In your clear-eyed view, as the dust has gotten close to being settled, where does the race stand now in terms of winners and losers? I mean, look, at the end of the day, uh, if you win, you win, right? And Joe Biden won. Uh, And defeating an incumbent president is no easy task, right? There have only been a handful of them, none since uh, 1992 with Bill Clinton defeating George H.W. Bush. Uh, And Joe Biden at this point looks like he's going to get the largest popular vote percentage of any challenger since FDR in 1932 against Herbert Hoover. And his electoral college count will end up being probably north of 300. So from just a pure historical angle, Biden's win was decisive. Uh, Obviously, there was some polling that indicated he might have done a little bit better. We can get into that a little bit later on. Uh, But just in terms of historical context, I think Biden's win was clear. Obviously, I think if you look at the House races, Democrats are not as pleased with the results. Many of the forecasts had them actually gaining from the 235 that they had won in 2018, maybe getting the 240 or even 245 in a few instances, and they'll be lucky to hit 225. So they lost seats there. So I think that that's a disappointment. Uh, And obviously in the Senate, you hit on it. They're going to need a little bit of a prayer to win those two uh, two runoffs down in Georgia uh, in early January in order to get to 50-50. And most people thought that uh, they would, in fact, there was a better shot that they would get a majority than not out of the Senate. So Look, I think the overarching picture is that voters decided to go in a different direction than reelecting Trump. But I don't think that it was the, um, let's say, the backlash to it. It's certainly not a backlash to Republicanism as much as it was a backlash to Trump. And I think the differences between down ballot and at the top of the ticket are indicative of that. 
Yeah, so there was this this assumption, I think, amongst pollsters and some analysts that Trump, with his sky-high disapproval ratings and the chaotic handling of the coronavirus pandemic, was dragging down some down-ballot Republican candidates. But the Republicans ended up doing a lot better in the Senate and House races than expected. Do you think Trump hurt them or, or helped them? I, I, I think, look, they hurt, he hurt them, right? Uh, there's no doubt about it. If Trump were more popular, uh, they would have done better. But I think the real question is whether or not they did better than expected and did better given how Trump did. And I think the answer to that question is yes, right? I mean, if you look at states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, um, Wisconsin, uh, all states that at this point, uh, the margins are less than a point in the presidential race. But if you were to tally up essentially the Republican House candidates vote and the Democratic House candidates vote in each of those states, you'd find that the Republican candidates for the House are actually leading the Democratic candidates for the House in aggregate in each of those states. So it's a clear indication to me that they simply put ran ahead of the president. And while there was a backlash for Trump, it wasn't nearly as bad for House Republicans. And it sort of, you know, begs the question to use an overfraught phrase of what would have happened if there was a different Democratic candidate running for president than Joe Biden? Or what would have happened if there was a different Republican candidate running for president than Donald Trump. Would the presidential outcome been different? It may very well have been. Yeah, I think that that remains an open question, whether or not, you know, Biden's primary opponents like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren would have performed better against Trump. You actually, you had a piece in CNN this week that addressed Biden's unique strengths. Could, could you take us through that, that argument a little bit? Sure. I, I mean, look, essentially what I was saying was that Biden argued that he was the most electable Democrat, right? And what we know is through political science literature, and you in fact see it in some of the district results, right? Whether it be in Nebraska's second congressional district, which obvious, which has an electoral vote, which I spoke up a ton because it was part of a potential map for Biden to get to 270. Uh, Joe Biden won that district by over five points. The Democratic candidate for the House there, Kara Eastman, lost it by over five points. Differences between Biden and Eastman. Biden obviously ran as a more mainstream Democrat not necessarily centrist, but more mainstream. And Eastman ran with the backing of the progressive group Justice Democrats and was for Medicare for all. Obviously, Biden was not. And if you look at Biden's primary competition, whether it be Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, both of them backed Medicare for all. And we know through political science literature and we know through even my own studies of just some simple regressions that ideology matters. It doesn't make the difference between a 20-point loss and a 20-point win but it could make the difference between a two-point loss and a two-point win. And the fact that Biden was able to hold on and win a close race when the House Democrats didn't do nearly as well uh, was a sign that Biden was running ahead of the baseline. And you also add, and when you take a look at the comparison between 2020 and 2016, that Biden was seen as more moderate than Trump this go around, while Trump was seen as more moderate than Clinton. Hillary Clinton was in 2016. And we also know the facts that uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were the two least like candidates of all time in 2016. Trump won because of the 18% of the electorate that like neither Clinton nor Trump and Trump won by a 17 point margin among that group. While with Biden, in no matter which exit poll you look at, he was better liked than disliked. And all he had to do was when the voters who viewed him favorably, he did so. And with those voters was able to win the presidency. And the thing that, that I think surprised me most on, on election night was, you know, you note that Biden looks like he's going to win 
this race by a historic margin. But Trump still got, what, uh, north of 70 million votes. Did Trump's performance nationally surprise you? Just how many people came out and voted for him? Yeah, I mean, look, we there was one thing that I was pretty much willing to guarantee as we went to election day, and that was we were looking at record turnout, uh, at least uh, as a percentage of the voting eligible age, voting eligible population dating back since 18 year olds got the vote uh, in the early 70s. And that definitely manifested itself, right? I think obviously seeing the raw numbers up there, seeing that both candidates got north of 70 million and that Biden may very well end up north of 80 million votes uh, is something quite to behold. And there's little doubt in my mind that there were voters who normally did not take place in the presidential or the election process that took, you know, decide to take part in it because President Trump was on the ballot and he was going after those voters. And I think it's something that we can't answer right now, but we'll certainly be able to answer in the next few weeks and certainly months ahead, uh, how many untraditional voters decided that they were gonna come out for Donald Trump. And the fact that the popular vote, forget the states for a second, that the popular vote ended up closer than expected, I, I think is something that we'll have to digest and figure out why exactly that was was there some Trump voter that we simply put, weren't reaching through the polls, through traditional metrics, uh, and whether or not the Republican Party can try to uh, take advantage of that in future elections, even if Trump isn't on the ballot? There's been a lot of talk about Trump's performance with Hispanic voters. Do you, do you have any takeaways about the demographic shifts this election? Yeah, I, I think that that's a number one, one right? Uh, and it's, you know, obviously Cubans, Cuban Americans in Southeast Florida, Miami Dade, you know, that was a county that, you know, Clinton won by, I think, about 30 points. And now Biden wins it by, I believe, a little less than 10. Uh, and it was driven by Cuban Americans, a ton of them deciding to flip their votes. Uh, but it's not just uh, Cubans who changed their mind. You look in the Rio Grande Valley uh, down in uh, te South Texas, and you see counties, you know, such as Zapata which haven't gone um, Republican in years, deciding to go for Trump. You look at a county like Star County, I think it's 96, 97% Hispanic. Uh, Hillary Clinton won that county by like 60. Joe Biden, last I checked, was winning it only by like five. Uh, and you wow. just go through, you go through the different counties. Look, there are certain places where Trump didn't overperform or outperform his 2016 numbers as much as he did in others. But there's no doubt that he did better with Hispanic voters across the board than he did four years ago. So that's something to keep an eye out on. Uh, do, even among, yeah, go on. Do, do you have any way to explain that? I think there are multiple ways to explain it. Uh, number one, I think that what Donald Trump tried to put together was a multiracial working class coalition, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. we frequently talk about whites without a college degree, but we know Hispanics are less likely to have a college degree than white voters are. So it would make sense Right. If he if sure. he's sort of speaking to this non-college vote, uh, that it would work with Hispanics as well, if not better. Uh, you would see shifts as as big as if not bigger than you would see among white voters. Uh, I think that that was part of it. Uh, you know, if you speak, there was a very good article. I think it was in the Times or maybe it was the in the Atlantic that essentially went down there in South Texas and was asking these voters what's going on, uh, and they thought that the economy under Trump was doing well. Uh, I, I think that there was uh, under a non-recognized fact 
that, you know, there was all this talk, oh, Trump and immigration, Hispanics will, you know, uh, there'll be a backlash against, it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're Americans just like anybody else. They're here experiencing the economy. You know, there's no reason to think that immigration is their one issue. Uh, so I think that's part of it. I think that among certain, certainly among young Hispanic men, there's been this belief of this machismo image that Trump has been sort of putting across uh, that I think flipped some votes there. Um, and, and, you know, the fact of the matter is that elections and politics are not static, right? They move. Uh, and, and the definition, which is a longer discussion than this podcast, the definition of what white is, right, has changed over time in this country. And I think there were a lot of Democrats who thought Hispanics would end up voting similarly to Black or African-American voters. And that, I think, is a thesis that is not just in doubt, but I think, to be honest with you, is false. Interesting. And yeah, I, I did see uh, an argument this week that because immigration was not at the forefront of this election season, that could be in part explained why uh, Hispanic voters broke more towards Trump. Because I mean, this year, it's really been it's been the coronavirus pandemic. And before that, it was the economy. Those were sort of the big issues. Um, And that that could explain a lot of those those shifts. Uh, I I do want to talk about polling. Um, And I, you know, it's an issue that I'm sure you're getting some abuse for in your group chats. Um, After 2016, there was an uproar that that polling had missed Trump's popularity. But I think it was it was pretty clear that that polls were were accurate uh, to a certain extent, but that the certainty derived from polling uh, by pundits was often mistaken. This year, there was quite a significant polling error in a lot of a lot of the polls that we saw. I want to read you a quote from Nate Cohn, who is the New York Times correspondent. And, I, and, yeah, I know I'm Nate sure very well. You're well familiar with him. But for our readers he's, uh, and our listeners, he's the paper's resident polling expert. He said in a recent interview that this was a much bigger polling miss in many important ways than in 2016. Do you agree with that? I would say let's wait until all the results are in. Um, I know what Nate is getting at. Nate is essentially saying we made all these adjustments after 2016 and the errors still occurred. Uh, and that's certainly the case, right? Uh, but interestingly enough, they occurred in many of the same places that they did in 2016, so much so that I had this map, which was actually derived from Nate's work uh, that I had shown up uh, on, on television frequently, which was essentially, if you take the polling averages in 2020, and then you apply the misses, the errors that occurred in 2016, what would your electoral college map look like? And it ended up getting every state but Florida correct. Uh, <laughs> so that I think sort of gives you an indication that in some ways, many of the errors were similar. Uh, the national error is gonna be greater than it was in 2016. Uh, no doubt about that. The national polls in 2016 were actually pretty good, uh, at least in terms of what they projected to be the final popular vote. And this year, they'll be closer to three, three and a half points would be my guess. But the one thing I will say is I think that there are two ways to look at this. One is pollsters are gonna have to look long and hard and see what exactly went wrong if they can figure it out. But two, if you take the long overarching look through history, the polling errors from 1936 to 1956 were significantly larger than the errors that we saw these past two cycles. Polls are not perfect. They are tools, as you were hinting at. There has to be a way to get across the uncertainty with them. And through the long arc of history, a three or three and a half 
point polling miss nationally is not that big of a deal. That doesn't mean, however, that when you have close elections and you have folks who are really looking down to the nitty gritty, that it's not something that needs to be worked on. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, my assumption going into this election was that pollsters, you know, took, took an enormous amount of shit in 2016 for missing the Trump victory. And in the interim, there was a, there were promises that the pollsters had corrected their models, they had fixed their weightings so that they would not underestimate, you know, white male voters without college degrees, for example. But, you know, is given that the polls this year missed uh, as much, if not by more, as they did in 2016 after resolving those issues, that, does that mean that the underlying data has to have been worse this year? It could very well mean that, uh, you know, yes, essentially. And I think that that sort of is the question going forward. Is there something that pollsters are missing that can be got at, right? Is this a, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's a shy Trump thing. The Trump voters are lying to pollsters. That's not what's happening, right? Because if anything, you saw that in the uh, undercard races, you know, for Senate, that the misses there were as significant, if not more so than the presidential race. If you look at the House races, which I think we hinted at earlier, where it suggested Democrats were going to at least hold their ground, if not gain, uh, that obviously didn't happen. So it's probably who's ever getting on the phone, uh, there's the current weights to weight them up are not adequate enough uh, to properly figure out what the electorate's thinking. And there may be some non-response bias with certain voters. And I've heard many of theories as to why that might be. Uh, that's something that might need to be fixed. The one thing I'll note that's very interesting is the polls in 2018 were actually pretty good. Uh, it just so happened it was 2016 when Trump was on the ballot and 2020. Is it just when Trump is on the ballot that something's going on? Or is it something having to perhaps do with the pandemic and non-response there? That's something that will have to be sort of delved into and try to figure it out in the weeks and months to come. One pollster that has pushed that shy Trump theory that you mentioned uh, is Trafalgar. Uh, I know they've, they've gotten a lot of hate from polling analysts for being sort of inexplicably pro-Trump in their waiting. Uh, but Trafalgar also has some good hits. I mean, they have a, a decent track record in some races by virtue, I think, of being one of the only polls that doesn't underestimate Trump's performance. What's your take on Trafalgar? I mean, look, I think Robert, who runs that, Robert Callahay, Kahali, Kahali I can never mm -hmm. pronounce it. He's a very nice guy. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, he was only nice to me when I spoke with him back in 2017. That being said, from a purely professional standpoint, it should be noted that while the rest of the pollsters might be underestimating Trump, he consistently overestimates Trump, right? Uh, mm. I think at the end of the day, if you look at his polls that were taken during the final three weeks of the campaign, I think on average, he overestimated Trump by, I want to say two and a half points. It might have even been up to three, depending on where the final margins actually end up. Uh, so I don't think he necessarily has the secret recipe. Uh, but the fact is that there are there are real questions that need to be asked and answered as to why Trump two elections in a row was underestimated, forget nationally, in very key swing states, you know, like Wisconsin. Uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, although Michigan won't be nearly as bad as Wisconsin was, for example, where I think the final margin is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of six tenths of a percentage point, And the final polling averages had Biden by eight. That's a that's a fairly wide miss and something that obviously needs uh, to be delved into much more. 
Now, I had Frank Luntz, the uh, Republican pollster on this show a few weeks ago before the election, and I asked him what it would mean for the polling industry if Trump won. And his reply was, quote, uh, if polling gets it wrong again, then the industry, at least for politics, is done. Now, Trump lost, but the polls did miss by a lot, as we've discussed, and Trump came very close to reelection. What is your take on the argument that the polling industry is broken? Well, I think there's a difference between broken and done, right? Uh, mm. Those are two different two different adjectives. Or for I never I never knew grammar. I failed a consecutive grammar quiz. <laughs> let's in start with grade. his. Let's start with his argument that it's done. Yeah. Um, no, that's not the case. Uh, mm. Look, the polls again, as I said earlier, uh, in the long arc of history, this is not the worst crisis ever faced by far. Uh, there are obviously things need to get fixed. Uh, but more than that, at the end of the day, people are always going to be interested in who's ahead and who's behind. And they're always going to be looking for the best way to potentially figure that out at any given point. And polls at this point will consistently be better than hot takes, will be better than crowd sizes, right? As we sort mm -hmm. of were hinting at, Biden still won. Uh, if you looked at the crowd sizes and the enthusiasm, you'd have thought Trump would have went on a landslide. So that didn't happen. Uh, and, and more than that, there'll be this thirst to figure out where the electorate actually stands on issues, uh, forgetting the horse race for a second. There'll be people who are interested, you know, are, are we a society that wants to socially distance? Are we a society that wants, you know, restaurants uh, to close at certain hours in a pandemic? And polls are really the only way of getting at that. Uh, obviously, if they're missing in the horse race by as much as they have, uh, then there needs to be improvement so we can trust the numbers that are coming out for polls on non-horse race issues. But the idea that they're done, I, I, I think is, um, it's just not, it's just not, not gonna happen. Um, and that's really, that I think is the bottom line. I think there's room for improvement, but there are going to be polls. It's just a matter of the shape and form that they take. I think that's a good point. I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's quite clear that we don't really have other tools that are as helpful for understanding electorates. And it's also true that I don't think political analysts are going to abandon polls anytime soon, given how useful they are, even if they have misses. Um, particularly, I'm thinking of the, the, I think the biggest with this season was probably the ABC News Washington Post poll that had uh, what Biden up 17 points in Wisconsin, um, which is getting trotted out a lot. Do you, do you think those kind of pollsters are doing any self-reflection about how they got that kind of stuff wrong? And pollsters are always doing self-reflection. This idea, I mean, look, I'm not, let's be clear, right? I'm not a pollster. I analyze mm -hmm. polls. I'm not someone who's going out in the field. I understand the science and the art behind it, but I'm not myself a pollster. Uh, that being said, pollsters and analysts want to get it right, right? This is, you know, I, there's a reason why, you know, I speak with pollsters or analysts and why, you know, folks are nervous before an election is because it's all on the line, right? It's one of the rare instances where you get to see whether or not your methodological chops and your analytical chops are up to snuff. So there's no doubt about that. Uh, that being said, you know, to use the Wisconsin poll for an example, I think outliers are good things when it comes to polls, right? And there are going to be outliers when it comes to polls because there's sampling error involved and a whole slew of other 
potential measurement errors. And so I don't want pollsters holding back from polls just because they think that their poll might be an outlier. Sure, obviously, uh, Joe Biden did not win in Wisconsin by 17 points. But if you're taking tens, hundreds, thousands of polls, there's going to be the occasional poll that shows an outlier result. And I think it's healthy for pollsters to publish those because if they didn't, then you might get something called herding, uh, which essentially is the pollsters trying to uh, herd themselves to the average, you know, congregate on the average. And that actually makes the average poll less accurate. And any pollster who's worth their chops is not going to do that. They're going to publish a poll as long as everything sort of lines up, even if the number that they end up producing is either too good for one candidate or too good for another. Right. Now, I want to talk about news coverage of the election. You were part of CNN's quite spectacular election week coverage. Uh, The network, uh, particularly John King, uh, had a moment last week. You guys drew record ratings. You beat Fox News, which is astonishing. And you eventually earned the distinction of being the first network to call the race for Joe Biden. Do you think that the networks waited too long to call this election? I mean, we had election night on Tuesday. And then several days where the votes were being counted, Decision Desk HQ had called the race, but the networks were declining to, and CNN was the first to call the race on Saturday. Do you think that that was too long to wait? What do you you make of that decision? Look, this is the presidency of the United States we're talking about here. The stakes were incredibly high as shown through the ratings, right? I can't Mm. tell you how many friends or People I once knew but hadn't contacted me in 10 years decided to text me, what is going on? I hope this is still your number. Uh, That's what we're talking about here, right? And when it comes down to it, especially with the differences between vote by mail and in-day election day voting, in-person election day voting, the networks were right to take their time, cross their T's, dot their I's, make sure that when they made the call, it was the right call because the last thing you needed to do was project the wrong winner, right? I was not of age in 2000, although I followed it very closely for someone whose bar mitzvah had not yet occurred. Uh, But you can recall that just mess as it was. And so I have no issue with the networks waiting to project. That didn't keep folks from myself saying, look, this is clearly moving in a certain direction. But to sort of put that check mark there to be extra careful, I didn't really have too much of an issue with it, if I'm being honest with you. Did you think that Fox News, which called Arizona first for Joe Biden, do you think that that was a mistake calling it that early? I mean, look, uh, here's the situation. Arnie Michigan who I know well, uh, who runs that decision desk, is a very smart guy, a good guy. Uh, Joe Biden's probably going to win the state of Arizona. Uh, Obviously, CNN did not call that race, and CNN had its own reasons for not calling it. Uh, But at the end of the day, the votes are going to be sort of the votes. And what I'll point out, obviously, is network projections are network projections, right? They are not the ultimate arbiter. The votes are the ultimate arbiter, regardless whoever projects. But there's a reason why CNN has been as cautious as it has been and has a pretty good track record at doing so. And I should also note, I'm not part of the CNN decision desk either, uh, Mm. although I know them uh, well and they're professionals and whatever they say goes. 
What, what do you think we have in store for the next couple months here? Because uh, President Donald Trump and his uh, many of his Republican allies are refusing to concede the race and, and sort of accept that Joe Biden has quite clearly won uh, the presidency. And we have in January a Georgia runoff uh, between uh, the two senators in that state. Uh, what does the political landscape look like for the next couple months as we prepare for, presumably prepare for a, a Joe Biden administration? Yeah, I'm going to be interested to obviously see what the uh, president does. Look, he's lost this election. Uh, there's no, there's no sign of fraud on any wide scale um, uh, rate or range um, or scale. There's just no sign of it, right? So we know that Joe Biden has enough votes in the states, totaling 270 electoral votes plus, to get you know, to win the presidency. Uh, and I think the question ultimately is, is does Donald Trump want to drag everybody through this and uh, not do what every president before him has done, right? I had a slide uh, and I wrote an article on this. There have been a number of elections that have taken place in the last 100 years in which the winning candidate won a similar share of electoral votes as Joe Biden did, or is probably going to win. And in each of those instances, the challenge of the opponent who lost had conceded by this point. Donald Trump is doing what he's doing for the reasons that he's doing it. Uh, I can just tell you that there's there's no there there. Uh, mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, the question, you know, to make it more of a political question is, is carrying on like this hurting the Republicans' chances down in Georgia, uh, where yeah, obviously you had a very close presidential race, one in which Joe Biden leads in the number of votes, and uh, the Secretary of State has said that it was a clean election and very, everyone pretty much feels that Biden will hold on to that win even through you know, a recount. Uh, so the president has a decision to make here, uh, but at the end of the day, I don't think that decision makes a dime of difference who takes the office on January 20th. It's gonna be Joe Biden. It's just gonna be whether or not the president wants to do what every other person who's been in his position before in the last century has done, and that's up to him. Um, I can just tell you he's lost. I, I have to think by just judging by the uh, the response by top Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, to what the president is doing right now has to be with eyes towards those Georgia races. Uh, do you think that that will play a part in helping uh, Kelly Loeffler and, and David Perdue uh, when they when they have their runoffs, the fact that President Trump is is challenging the results in Georgia. Well, I I, I don't know. You know, this is sort of what an unusual year. What an unusual <laughs> year. A pandemic election. Uh, this type of an election. Now a president not conceding, despite the fact that he's clearly not won. He has lost. I don't know the answer. I can tell you that it's distracting to the Republicans um, trying to fundraise down there, whether it be Loeffler or Purdue. Uh, maybe it's a play to try and gin up turnout in a runoff. And if to that extent, maybe it might help. But the truth is, I don't know the answer, right? Uh, this, is, this is one of those, there's no playbook really for this. Uh, mm. I, I would say, obviously, if you look at a study of past runoffs in Georgia, uh, Republicans tend to improve from the uh, general election to the runoff, or I guess the jungle primary to the runoff in the case of the special. Uh, and 
I'll also note that, you know, black turnout tends to drop in runoffs in Georgia. So that's not a great sign for Democrats. That being said, this is a weird year. Uh, there's an African-American who's one of the um, Senate candidates for the Democrats. And I will also note that while in Georgia, Democrats tend to do worse in runoffs than they do in general elections. In Louisiana, a state that has somewhat similar demographics that's also in the Deep South, uh, Democrats have tended to improve in runoffs versus general elections. So we'll just have to see what happens. Uh, it's an interesting one, but I'll say that the Republicans are probably favored at this point but it's not a foregone conclusion, especially given the fact that right now, Joe Biden has more votes in the state of Georgia than Donald Trump does. Good point. Now, for my last question, as you note, it's it's a particularly weird year. I think it must have been particularly weird covering an election in a, uh, in a at a news network during a pandemic. What was it like covering the election week for CNN last week? Election week was actually the most normal week. Um, <laughs> You know, the, the, the months leading up were the abnormal to me insofar as that. Have you ever tried doing a television shoot from your apartment that on either side looks like a giant mess? And then what you're <laughs> essentially hoping for is the camera is focused the correct way and the Internet reception is good enough that it holds. And sometimes it doesn't hold. Uh, and, and you're hoping and praying for the best. And that, that is very unusual and abnormal versus an election week. Look, CNN took a lot of precautions uh, to ensure a safe work environment as much as you possibly could. You know, we had to take a test every day. Um, we had to um, keep socially distant. We wore masks within the building. Uh, I really didn't have a lot of contact with pretty much anyone until really election night you know, you went to your flash studio and that was basically it. Uh, so it was abnormal. It was weird. But at the end of the day, it seems to, at least from a coverage standpoint, I don't think there's anyone at CNN who wasn't proud of the coverage that was was put on. It was 100% professional from A to Z, especially given all of the potential obstacles. Uh, and I will say that, you know, as someone who enjoys elections, um, I, I, I had a lot of as much fun as I possibly could covering it, given the seriousness and given the pandemic nature of it. I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you, Harry. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and look out for our coverage of my conversation with Harry Enton on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week.